0: Hey there. It's Susan and this is a solo episode. I'm really interested in the future of hospitality and especially the hotel industry. I've spent most of my adult life in the hotel business in one way or another. And of course, there have been so many occasions over the years when I couldn't help but think that there had to be a better way. I know I'm not alone. Hoteliers talk about how the industry is behind the times and not tech savvy all the time. I have a theory about one of the tangled knots of our industry that keeps us from moving forward, but I don't completely know how to untangle it. So let me explain and then I'm hoping some, hopefully many of you will have ideas that we can explore in future episodes. Do you remember in the earliest days of the pandemic when the Paycheck Protection Plan came out? I'm definitely not an accountant or a lawyer or a banker, so don't take this as gospel. But the basics were that businesses would get some forgivable financial relief if they would not lay off all of their employees. At some point, I ran across some outrage post about how Marriott and Hilton shouldn't be allowed to take this PPP money. The comments were all super rage inflated and made it very clear that no one in the conversation realized that most Marriott's and most Hilton's and most hotels are owned by someone completely different than the brand name on the building. Maybe I should give a different example. Have you ever tried to explain to your Aunt Betty Sue that, yes, while you work at the Weston, you don't work for Weston? In fact, you work for the hospitable hospitality management company. And then when Aunt Betty Sue says, oh, you work for the owner then, you have to say, well, no, ma'am, Aunt Betty Sue, the owner is actually stone rock, boulder mountain properties. Then later, as you're trying to snag your 11th deviled egg, you overhear Aunt Betty Sue say to Uncle Junior, that girl is up to something. I don't think she even really has a job. My point is this, the hotel business is too convoluted for the general public to understand. And worse than that, many of the people who work in the hotel industry don't actually realize what business that they're in. Here's the shortest possible explanation. This applies to most hotels in the US, about 70%. A typical hotel has three separate and powerful stakeholders, the brand, the owner, and the management company. The brand is the name or flag of the hotel, like Kempton, Weston, Embassy Suites, Right at 70% of American hotels are branded, meaning they fly some sort of brand flag, even hotels that don't sound familiar. The largest hotel brand companies are names you've heard of, like Hilton, Marriott, IHG, Choice, Hyatt, Best Western, Don't Get Mad If I Didn't List Yours... And each of these companies have an assortment of brands. So for example, as a result of purchasing Starwood in 2016, Marriott has 30 brands. Hilton has 18 brands. One of the cleverest moves the brand companies have made is to create a category of hotel known as a soft brand. I honestly had no idea which company came up with this first. So I did a little research and discovered a great article that Terrence Baker wrote for Hotel News Now, I think in 2018, about this very subject. Apparently, Choice was the first with Ascend in 2008, followed by Marriott's autograph collection around November of 2009 and I'll link that article in the show notes. There's something like 15 soft brands now with both Marriott and Hilton offering two maybe three soft branded hotels retain their unique identities like their decor, the style, the if they're historic, the historic features And then they pay the brand companies franchise fees for distribution, access to their loyalty programs, et cetera. Other brands, I guess maybe we should start calling them hard brands, have to comply with more stringent rules and regulations about how they look and what they offer, all of which is extremely boring but ensures that travelers know what to expect, allegedly. In any case, the owner pays the brand, for example, Marriott, to license the name and access the standard operating procedures, reservation system, loyalty program, all that stuff. The franchise and marketing fees range between 6 and 12% of top-line revenue. So brands are in the franchise fee business and the marketing business. Speaking of the owner, the hotel real estate, meaning the building, the land, the stuff inside is owned by the owner. I mean, duh, that sounds stupid, but I'm trying to keep it simple. When I say owner, you're probably picturing a singular person and that is sometimes the case, but more often the owner is really a collection of people with One or two individuals designated to speak for them. I'll put definitions for REITs, private equity owners, sponsorship syndication, and crowdfunding as it relates to hotel ownership in the show notes. Owners are real estate investors of one flavor or another, so they usually prefer to hire third-party management companies to operate the hotel. Actually, not only do they prefer it, but brands require it in order to secure a franchise agreement. So like if you're a random turkey off the street, you have no hotel experience, and you built a hotel, you can't run it yourself no matter how much money you spent, no matter how much you've got invested in the building or the purchase of the hotel. What's a management company, you ask? It's exactly what it sounds like, a company that is hired to manage the hotel. These are the folks that hire staff, order supplies, set rates, and generally keep the business going. In exchange for their work, they too get a percentage of gross revenue, usually between 2 and 5%. Notice that I said gross revenue and not profit. We'll come back to that. Thus, the brand doesn't run the hotels that bear its name. And often, the owners of the real estate don't run them either. But why, you ask? Well, long story short, brands in the 80s and 90s began selling off their real estate with the idea that they would retain those management agreements because it was more lucrative and less capital intensive. By the early 2000s, this evolved into the even more lucrative model of collecting fees for royalties, marketing, technology, et cetera, and leaving operations to third-party management companies. Here's another analogy. Imagine if you are super techie, super mechanically inclined, and you build your own vehicle from scratch. You welded it, you glued it, whatevered it together. And since being a Toyota would give you better insurance rates, you decide that you'd like this car that you built to be a Toyota. You submit a hefty fee to the Toyota company to get them to give you the stickers, the emblems, and all that stuff to make your car a Toyota. They take your money and they also let you know that you'll have to pay them a percentage for every mile that you drive. And since you're a new Toyota driver, rather than jumping behind the wheel yourself, you'll have to hire a Toyota-approved driver. This is basically the state of affairs in hotels right now. There are two reasons that I'm explaining all of this. First, because most people in the world including most people who work in hotels, have no idea that this is how it's done. If you ask a traveler, the most savvy among them will probably understand that they can earn these points or that status by staying at a hotel affiliated with a loyalty program, but they won't know or care who owns the real estate and who employs the staff. Interestingly enough, most hotel employees are pretty much in the dark about this too. They'll understand what brand their hotel is, and they most likely know who the management company is because that's who pays them. But they are highly unlikely to know who owns the hotel, much less what the owner's goals are, intentions are. I have no idea if this is deliberate for some reason or just a case of making the assumption that line staff in hotels can't understand the ownership thing, but it is, we're sure, a real condition. As a result, you'll hear hotel workers say things like, the owner just needs to build a swimming pool and all of our problems will be over uh, without realizing that the human who walks through the hotel on the day of the owner's meeting is in all likelihood representing a group of institutions and or retail investors who have all been promised financial returns to make their investment worth it the owner's rep or asset manager isn't sitting on a pile of money just denying check requests willy-nilly like Scrooge McDuck. More often than not, the spending of any money requires significant buy-in and is sometimes governed by SEC regulations. Actually, this seems to like a good time to remind you that I am neither a lawyer nor an accountant, so caveat emptor. That's not to say that ownership entities are stingy with capital investments or renovations. Some are, some aren't. It's just to say that they are in the real estate investment business, not the running of hotels business. And they spend money to optimize investor returns, not to optimize guest or employee experience, except in cases when they are one and the same. The second reason I'm explaining all this is that because of the way the hotel business is split between the three entities, no one is incentivized to innovate in a big way. None of the stakeholders really benefits by investing in the long-term health of either individual hotels or the industry as a whole. I'll use a couple of examples to explain this. The first is this top-line or gross revenue situation versus profit. We've talked about this at length with past guests, um, most recently with Era Vogue. And the fact is that top-line revenue in a hotel is not an accurate measure of the financial health of the business or of profitability. The easiest example to give is this. If you've been told that you need to sell $100 worth of cookies and each cookie costs $0.50 cents to make, it is more profitable to sell 10 cookies at $10 each than it is to sell 100 cookies at a dollar each. If you sell 10 cookies, your profit's $95. If you sell 100 cookies, your profit is $50. It's easier to sell 100 cookies for a dollar each than it is to sell 10 cookies for $10 each. I mean, a $10 cookie is a pretty hefty caloric intake. Same is true with hotel rooms. It would seem obvious that each member of our hotel stakeholder triumvirate would rather sell 10 cookies at $10 each than 100 cookies at a dollar each. However, that is not exactly the case because remember, franchise fees and management company fees are mostly based on top-line revenue rather than profit. I'm oversimplifying this. There are all kinds of agreements and incentives that include profit calculations, NOI, expense control, etc. But big picture... These two business models are built on fees that are based on top-line gross revenue. So it doesn't really matter if they sell 10 cookies or 100 cookies as long as they get the $100. You may be thinking, well, the owner cares about profit though, right? Certainly, owners care more about profit because that's what allows them to pay their investors' distributions on a regular basis. But the real money for a hotel owner, real estate investor usually comes when the hotel gets sold and that valuation is determined by revenue. When it's time to sell, the owner wants the annual revenue of the hotel to be as high as possible. Again, I'm definitely oversimplifying, but those are the broad strokes. In other words, most of the time, the stakeholders of a hotel have more to gain by focusing on gross or top line revenue than by focusing on profit, which puts short term success ahead of long term health. Another way of looking at this is through the lens of the labor crisis. The hotel labor situation was already in crisis before the pandemic. And the challenges of the last few years have accelerated an existing problem. A few things I keep hearing about are owners that are furious when they have to pay for brand services that they can't get because the folks doing the services have been laid off. Travelers are irritated to be paying for full rates and not getting daily housekeeping and other services that they're used to. And operators in some types of hotels in some markets are pushing rates sky high because they don't have enough staff to service a full sold-out hotel. Meanwhile, some of the solutions that hotel people have posited or are offering make me scratch my head. These include... (laughs) This idea of unbundling services and charging for each and every aspect of a hotel stay, adding technology band-aids to the mix like contactless check-in or maybe a better example is QR code menus, and glorifying behaviors like when people sleep at the office or mow the lawn in their business suit or staff the front desk versus calling on sales customers. All of these things and the countless others that I'm sure you can think of are short-term solutions to a long-term systemic problem. So who is investing in the design of a tech-enabled guest room that needs less housekeeping attention? Who's building the SaaS offering that allows for true personalization and travel so that instead of charging for every single towel, we can proactively offer the right stay to the right person at the right price without turning into the airlines? Who's rethinking demand generation and commercial positioning on this broad scale so that hotels don't need giant sales teams spending most of their time entering data in a CRM? It feels like the answer is no one, although I'm sure I'm not right about that. I'm just not interested in hearing people say over and over again, well, it shouldn't be this way. I mean, maybe it shouldn't, maybe it should, but it is. Publicly traded companies have to pay attention to their quarterly returns. That's just how it works. So I don't want to spend a lot of time bemoaning the current state of affairs, but rather figuring out solutions that will help the 70% of hotels that find themselves in this position. So for many months now, I have been following my curiosity about every possible aspect of hospitality, and I have no plans to stop. So let's hear it. What are your thoughts? If you have an idea or have created a solution that will carry our business forward in spite of everything I just said, we should talk. Or if I got everything wrong that I just said, we should talk. Please get in touch at Susan at TopFloorPodcast.com or call or text me at 850-404-9630 DM me on Instagram at Top or find the Top Floor Podcast page on LinkedIn. I would love to hear from you. Okay, folks, I'm going to step off my soapbox and tell you a quick loading story before we check out. Going down. When I was a wee lass at my very first hotel job, I was the director of catering, which put me in the pool of people who had to serve MOD shifts. And in those days, a manager on duty shift meant that you checked into the hotel on Friday evening, stayed through the weekend, and then checked out on Sunday night. I had been warned that while it was annoying to give up my weekend, I would be able to catch up on a lot of work and it wouldn't be a big deal, so not to fret. So I was sitting at my desk... Typing a BEO into a Word document, because this was before we had Delphi or any of that good stuff, when the giant radio sitting next to me started exploding with front desk to M-O-D, front desk to M-O-D. So I walked through the lobby to the front desk, wondering what the heck was going on when I encountered an elderly gentleman who had asked to speak with the manager. I introduced myself and let him know that I was the manager on duty. And he let me know that, no, sweetheart, I want to talk to the manager. (laughs) Now, of course, in hindsight, I realized that I probably looked like I was a 12-year-old, so I can't blame him. But at the time, it was highly irritating. So I let him know that I was the best he was going to get and asked him what I could help him with, which is when he told me that the servers in the restaurant had been regularly mickeying his food and drink and capturing his mind for between 12 and 24 hours each time. I truly have no recollection of what I said to him, except that there was no way that that was possible and that I would have the general manager call him on Monday morning. So that's it, friends. That's the story of my very first MOD shift when I was just a baby hotelier. Thanks for listening. Top Floor is supported by Cayuga Hospitality Consultants. For more than 35 years, Cayuga's international network of hospitality consultants has helped guide industry stakeholders from owners and operators to lenders and investors, Whether you need help with a short-term project or longer-term guidance, consultants bring executive-level lodging, food and beverage, asset management, and development expertise. Cayuga brings together every discipline of hospitality to deliver operational excellence and financial success. Learn more at cayugahospitality.com or call 866-386-386 four zero two zero. And Cayuga is spelled C-A-Y-U-G-A. Thank you so much for listening. This has been episode 36 and you can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 36. Also, if you're listening on your computer, there's a better way. You can follow the show in Apple podcast or Spotify and have each weekly episode delivered to your phone. Top floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode.